Getting the smile and confidence you've been dreaming about all from the comfort of your home isn't a total mystery with Bite Clear Aligners. Just don't be surprised if all your friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Bite Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. You can host the best backyard barbecue. When you find a professional on Angie to make your backyard the best around. Connect with skilled professionals to get all your home projects done well. Inside to outside, repairs to renovations. Get started on the Angie app or visit Angie.com today. You can do this when you Angie that. Hi there, it's Julia Louis-Dreyfus. You may know me from my podcast called Wiser Than Me, where I talk to older women and get their wisdom from the front lines of life. I was amazed by how many people told me our show made them look forward to getting older, which is why I'm here to talk about season two of the show. Sally Field, Billie Jean King, Beverly Johnson, Ina Garten, Bonnie Ray, just to name a few. All hail old women. Wiser Than Me season two is out now from Lemonada Media. What's up, everybody? Welcome to this episode of True Crime and Cocktails. We're so glad that you're here. As always, I am your host, Lauren Ash, and as always, I am joined by my co-hostess with the most S, Christy Oxborough. How you feeling? Oh, I'm barely alive. Yeah. (laughs) Barely! Yeah, you know, we may have spread ourselves a little thin. Yeah. You know, may have uh, inadvertently bitten off more than we can chew type situation. (sighs) I 100% agree. Or at least I did. Um, Yeah. Oh, you've gone hard all year. You know what it is, is that there's been a lot of things that have been coming up that are exciting and fun and all of the above, but unfortunately have all come at once. (laughs) Yeah. But yeah, yeah, it's, it's been like since the new year, since before my birthday, I've basically been sick. Because I've gone too hard. And that continues. I'm not sick now, but if you can hear it in my voice, yeah, I'm teetering. I'm teetering yep. on the edge. Yep. Um, we had referenced that we were going to be taking a week off because of scheduling. Well, that's because yeah. Christy and her family came to L.A. Yeah. For a week. Yeah. Then I got I had a day-ish, and then I went to Disney World for a work commitment for four days. Which was also yeah. amazing and fun. But yeah, long story short, I just, by the end of it, I, I mean, when you guys came, I was still sick. Yep. Yep. So it's just been, yeah, you know, burning that midnight oil, I guess you could say. Yeah. It was probably about day two um, of us being there that I realized you and I had shared a water bottle. And I went, that probably wasn't good. I was, I was barely alive when I got home. Well, listen, it wasn't me yeah. because I, I was no longer contagious. 
Sure. Again, according we, to my doctor, we are, not, we are not talking COVID, by the way. Oh, no. We're no, just no. talking. I've had a million COVID tests over the last three months, and they've <laughs> all course. come back negative. Yeah. Um, no, he told me I was no longer contagious by then. Oh, well, then uh, it should have been fine. Then who knows where I got it? We were around a lot of people. We were around a lot of people. Lot and of it's people. also, I mean, when I get run down, heaven forbid, and we didn't stop moving. Nope. We had and listen, also, my doctor could be wrong. I mean, what does he know? Does he know the exact minute I got sick and the exact minute I was no longer? Who knows? Oh, I just love that I just automatically trust a doctor more than I trust myself, <laughs> which is terrible. That's not the way it should be. But. Well, no, listen, I hear you. I hear you. Yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, it was great fun. I think we're both still in our, like, exhausted, shell-shocked phase. Yeah. You're doing great. Doing great. Yeah. And, and it was just, it's just been one of, it's just been go, go, go. You know, that's, that's part of it. That's and the I thing. Think, you know, too, when we started this podcast. Yeah. It's important to remember that it was October 2020. Yes. And what did we have? Nothing but time. <laughs> I was still on an air mattress in my living room watching movies that I called isolation classics. <laughs> From the 80s and 90s, I picked movies I hadn't seen in decades. Yeah. Yeah, and so that's we what just I was had, doing. We, what we did was we had, we had nothing but time to devote to this. And, yeah. and God bless it. What a gift. But I think that the important thing to remember is we set a bar. We set a precedence for yep. ourselves. Yep. And then things happened like, you know, the world started to, I don't want to say go back to normal, but started to become what it is now is its new normal. And uh, I went back to work full time and all of these things. So it's 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 just <laughs> unrelenting. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And then somewhere in there, we went from hour-ish episodes to two and a half to three hour episodes. Oh, which yeah. didn't help. No, didn't help us anyway. Well, <laughs> oh God, you're doing great. <laughs> That was a full belch. That's what I'm bringing to the table, dear listeners, today. Burps and, I was going to say, big exhaustion. Big exhaustion. exhaustion. Well, big exhaustion. I like that. Saving time. And I love what I bring is using this podcast like a voice note uh, to my husband. Remind me to look into Spice Girls vinyl. <laughs> There was some Spice Girls on the radio uh, on my way uh, home to do this, and I I got so into it that what I song? almost missed the turn. Spice uh, of Your stop. Life. Oh, you love that one. I, it's just so catchy. I'm here for it. I love it so much, and I was like, I'd like I'd like to look into their vinyl situation, see what that's all about. I love that. And I could write a note, but it's like on where I don't know. I'll never see it again. So if I say it here. I'll also, it's also a test to see if he still listens. <laughs> I don't know if he does. Doesn't matter. Like he that. doesn't have to. No one's under an obligation. That's where yeah. we're at. That's where we're at. Look, there's lots of people that listened religiously in the pandemic, <laughs> and I don't think they've checked in in some time. Again, yeah. that's not their fault. Everyone's time so is time. limited now. It's yeah. limited. Yeah. It's limited. It is. I mean, that's the whole reason I think we ended up uh, doing California is because time is limited. And that is a metaphor that I that I like to uh, 
Well, I don't like to think about it all the time. That makes it sound like I'm being morbid. But I think it is important to note that life is short. And why not take the trips? Take the trips. Life is short. Why not purchase so many things that you can't take it all back with you? So that many was a gentle ribbing I was giving that, uh, young Oxborough over there. Uh, I mean, you made up for the ribbing with that young. Um, it's it's the fact that you you buy so many bags and you have to turn around and hand her <laughs> three full bags back because I cannot fit it all. Yep. In, but, um, I mean, mentally, I'm already planning the next one. I'm probably still going to be paying this one off three years from now. But. Uh, but it was a time. It was an experience. I uh, I had a great time. Yeah, it was a beautiful thing. And I'm I'm just I'm here for it. We saw a lot of things. We just were constantly going. Yeah, we laughed a lot. A lot of laughter. A lot of laughter. Um, oh God, some hiccups. <laughs> sure, <laughs> as as you do. But sure. uh, but overall, I think it was a great time. My kids all got to go on an airplane for the first time. That's right. I thought the youngest, um, who is rather an anxious person, I more so than me, I thought he was going to take it the hardest. I thought it was going to be really bad. So I brought mystery prizes he likes to open, and I brought all these things to make him happy on the flight and to distract him. Uh, we went through turbulence. I looked over at him. He was playing something on his phone. He looked up at me, raised his eyebrows in like a, huh, having a great time. And I just went, "Uh uh-huh, back to his phone. Didn't, nothing. Didn't, uh, didn't even consider it was a problem. Nothing, none of it. I was like, no shit. All right. I guess maybe with no frame of reference, maybe he was just like, guess this is it. Yeah, he was just like, this is how it works. And I mean, yeah. I spent a lot of time being like, no matter what happens, you are perfectly safe. This is just what it does. Sometimes it gets a little bumpy, whereas I'm losing my shit internally because I am not a good flyer. Um, and then my middle one uh, took about 150 photos from the plane. Uh, he has requested I print an album of just photos he's taken. And I took so many pictures and you did. And my husband did of like all of us or just the kids or whatever. And so I was like, maybe you want me to include some of those? No, he just wants his like very obvious window of an airplane photo album, which I think is very sweet. Um, And then my oldest was like, didn't really like turbulence, but it's fine. He slept so many times, like just, you look over and his head's hanging and he's passed out. <clears throat> you know, I, I envy that of the teenagers. I, I do. envy the, yes. the ease in sleep. I really do. It's like a button. He just pushes that button and bam, down, done. You know, I slept on my flight back from Orlando yesterday. Oh, good for you. Barely. Here's the problem for me. If I don't get one of the, now when I get flown for work, this is a, it's a union rule. It's a SAG after rule. You have to get flown first class. It's not being a diva. It's just, that's the law. That's the law. So great. Um, But if I don't have one of the lay flat beds, I can't really sleep. I've never really been good at sleeping on planes. And part of the reason is 
And I don't know what this is, and I don't know whether this is just me or it's other people. It doesn't matter the type of pillow that I use. Okay. I will wedge it in a way where I can get myself into a corner in my chair. Now, this also goes if I'm flying any any distinction on a plane. But I try against a wall, against the side of a chair, whatever. And I will close my eyes and nod off. And within seconds, my neck is broken. Like within seconds, it's like it's hanging in a way. It's yeah. like it's like my forehead is touching my waist. Like my entire yeah. neck and head has flopped in a way where what wakes me from my slumber is the sheer pain, just yeah, the agony. Sure. And I guess for me, I know that they've got those, someone came up with the idea of this like pillow where you stick your head inside of it and then sure. you put it on the tray table and you you like sleep forward. I don't think that's good either. I'm not putting my head in anything. <laughs> nope. No. Immediately. No. I'm like, no, immediately no. No. But yeah, so I just woke myself up like 20 to 35 times, possibly mm-hmm. more, as my neck just just kind of came off of its, my skull came off of my neck is what it feels like. Of course. You didn't want to try a, a backpack at the window and put your arm in the sling? I forgot approach? about that tip. Damn it. Look, I'll tell you, I think I was also very hungover in that on that flight. So that's how that worked but no i i i'm not great at sleeping because i would like to lie down or at least be on an angle whereas upright it's hard to how do you yeah no i'm not interested because once my head starts falling then it hurts the back of your neck because you're like what have i done yeah because we're 40 (laughs) it happens the point is Watching a an eighteen year old hang his head down and then get up like it's nothing. That's what it is for me. It's the ability to sleep, and it's the fact that your body doesn't hurt yet. Anywhere and everywhere, just asleep. Yeah, like my husband has a series of photos of us doing stuff, and that kid's asleep everywhere we went. Like <laughs> he just had no problem with it. He also surprised me. He was the most excited. About everything we did. He was like, let's do this. I'm ready. I'm on board. Whereas the other ones were like, this is fun. And I thought the others were going to like huge react and they didn't. Maybe they were just overwhelmed because it was a lot. And we did give them like a scare with like, you're going to wear these air tags on your wrists (laughs) because this place is huge and we don't want you lost only lost one briefly. <laughs> I didn't know if you were going to bring it up. <laughs> Look, taking a group of people anywhere is a lot. Yep. Um, of all the places we went, we were always all together. And we had three adults, although, I mean, technically my, my 18-year-old is considered an adult. Yeah. Which is barf. But we had... Four adults and two younger children. Yeah. So it was always everybody mind the younger ones. Make sure we're walking in a file so that the younger ones are in between that kind of thing. But then sometimes you get so spread apart that it's hard to know what's going on. And at one point we turned a corner at Disneyland and went, why are there only five? Where's six? And then we, we realized we didn't have him. And we were like, oh, son of a bitch. Turns out he did not 
pay attention to where we were going and just kind of went on autopilot and went straight when we turned. Um, so then I st- we we start looking on the on the phone to like well, track because where the he, kids are wearing those is, air tags because he's wearing the air tags. I'm like, where is he? What's going on? And then I get a phone number from a California number. I don't know. I just answer it because I'm like, who knows? Turns out it's my kid. And I was like, where are you, bud? Bless his heart. He just looked around, went, I don't see my family, walked up to an adult and went, may I use your phone? I've lost my mom. Bless the guy. He went, of course. Called me. I have my husband running in a direction. I've got Lauren going, where is he? Where is he? Okay, I'm gone. And she was just fucking gone. Uh, the guy then got on the phone and was like, I'll try and help you. This is approximately where we are. I thanked him. We went, got him. We were apart less than five minutes. It was like just a couple of minutes. Uh, He was very careful to make sure he was with all of us at all times for the rest of that trip. And uh, I did text the gentleman and said, again, thank you so much, whatever. And he was like, so happy to help. Now, what I would like to do is recreate this entire story, but from my point of view. (laughs) Yes, Because I think the thing that you parents forget is that you've had close calls before. Like, you've had things happen with your children, I'm assuming at some point. I'm not saying there's anything. But yeah, right? Like, in a mall or something. I'm only assuming. She's never shared that with me if that's happened. I'm not saying this isn't like a code. But I'm saying, like, I'm sure at some point, having had three small children at some point, you've probably misplaced them in that similar kind of situation before. So I don't know that the alarm, and I know that the alarm I'm sure was high for you, but I don't know that you understand that for me, who doesn't have a child, like for me, it became a 1 million out of 10. This is the biggest crisis of our, I'm almost in tears thinking about it. Like, like Christy and her husband stayed impossibly cool through the whole thing. I'm running and I don't run. I'm running faster than I've ever run. And I'm doing laps. Yep. And I can't see him. And I come back to her. And she says where he is. And I'm bolting through the crowd like a like a salmon swimming upstream. And then I see him with your husband. Yeah. And I, everybody's like, oh, crisis averted. Everything's fine. <laughs> but what you didn't know was like, if this was a movie, the camera would have just slowly pushed in on me, who internally was not okay like like yeah. really not yeah. calming down my my panic heart mm-hmm. race did not dip i'm going to be honest without exaggeration and say probably about 90 minutes to 2 hours like it it sure. i it was a trauma for me yep <laughs> oh i think it was a trauma for him i yeah. i'm oh i think the only one who maybe experienced what i did was was probably him because i was just like <laughs> i am i'm i'm i've crossed over like this is it yeah. like i honestly thought at one yeah. part i was having a heart attack um sure yeah for the childless when again you've you've never mm. been tested in that way before sure. yeah just know it's uh it's not fun <laughs> no oh i uh i i i just want you to know we may appeared cool and calm for sure it was definitely a okay we're not gonna show the youngest one that we're panicked about his best friend yep because that would have started some tears and i was not in a mood and so we're like okay we're gonna figure this out we're gonna focus we're gonna get it done and then we're gonna then we'll be like uh, coming down from it and have our moment um but yeah again maybe two three minutes 
Maybe. Yeah. <coughs> he was for barely. Me, for me, it yeah. felt like 85 years. <laughs> sure. Sure. It was. And, I mean, I've had hellish. moments of like uh, your child on a playground or something and you look away and you look back and you don't see them immediately and you're like, oh my God. And then suddenly you see them and you're like, it's fine. Um, this was definitely the biggest and longest moment I've had of like, I don't know where he is and we are in the largest place on earth. Yeah. So. Yeah. Yeah. So there was definitely a panic. Uh, but uh, look, it was, he just kept walking, looked around and went, oh shit, this isn't right. And then just ever so calmly, ever so coolly, ever so coolly, uh, asked, asked a stranger. And that was the moment I was like, good for you asking somebody for like yeah. asking an adult for help. You went to an adult. I'm like, did the adult have children with him? And he goes, no. And then like, I said, did they look like an did employee? You, did you go or? to an employee? No. We're like, did he look like some sort of officer of any kind? No. no. He so you just, just went to approached an adult. the one single man in Disneyland. <laughs> and that's the thing. Maybe he had a girl with him. I don't know. Sure. I should have asked what was on his shirt. Yeah. Because did he go to him because he was drawn to something on the shirt or something? I don't know. But look, he was a, a seemingly lovely gentleman who was like, I'm going to try and help you <laughs> reunite. And we didn't. It is what it is. Yeah. And I'm going to absolutely find out if my mother-in-law still listens to this after that. Oh, yeah. Because that's not well, something we were planning on bringing up. Um, what I like is that... I'm just full of bel tests. Belching again. What I like is that you are doing a lot of tests for your family, which is nice. <laughs> I am. And look, again, nobody's obligated to listen to this, especially no. not my family. Uh, they started it, uh, which is why I... Uh, the only reason I question it. But... Um, yeah, it wasn't, well, uh, I mean, look, people can uh, throw shade if they want about it, but it's like it was an easy enough, we had an adult at the front, an adult at the back, multiple oh. kids and adults in the middle. We ended up, the line got so far apart that we didn't see him go one way or the other, and it just is what it is. It oh, no of, one's going to throw shade, by and the nobody, way. And nobody got hurt, everybody was fine, Lauren He is who was without the sin must cast the first stone. Wasn't that it's something in there? I'm, oh, I'm certain the worst person to ask that, for that. Well, but I my point is is that I I highly doubt, especially knowing our listeners, I highly doubt anyone is going to be judgmental. It can happen no. to anybody. It happens yes. quickly. It's probably happened to everybody. If anything, I'm sure. I think you're just making yourself even more relatable to the masses. That's all I think. Uh, I mean, if for anybody that didn't feel like they related to me in that moment, Earlier, I did get caught by my husband having a burp and a fart at the same time. So. <laughs> well, now you're covering all your bases. Even I am. childless now, like me. Look, I'm ever, ever so relatable. Uh, just <laughs> a nightmare of a woman. I think it's no. just my body is sick of cold medication. And uh, I was so, like, focused on writing one of the episodes that I didn't pay attention and I didn't eat enough today and mm -hmm. then all of a sudden i put cold medication in my body and my body was like i don't like this and then i'm like oh i should make up for it and eat extra and we had tacos and that's a recipe for disaster and the air had to go somewhere and it's like spoiler alert i'm gonna go everywhere yep and it did yep. and it is what it is so 
Well, listen, I thank you for your uh, transparency regarding gas. <laughs> and I thank you for also mm-hmm. remaining so cool that day because I think maybe you thought you were remaining calm for your youngest, but what you were actually doing was remaining calm for me. Sure. Because again, sure. I, that's an up there trauma. I might unpack it in therapy and that's got nothing to do Sure. <laughs> anyone involved it's got everything to do with the fact that that was oh god i can't even think about it too long it was so hey, was awful you did great awful. you were great in a crisis situation hey and sure. that's the thing and look yeah. hey i learned when it comes to crisis situations i always think i'm gonna fall apart but uh but no i was like okay let's figure this out before i think about it let's what's the problem what do we need to do to fix it And that's when mama comes in. And that's when she's like, I'm going to handle this and get it dealt with. And And then make no mistake, get on a ride and raise my arms to just feel free to forget. Feel free. I was also that way. It was when he was found, I think that's when it really kicked into me, like what my body had been going through for the two to three minutes prior, which Mm -hmm. was just such extreme stress. It was really something. Because I stayed put with two while you guys were kind of wandering in the direction you thought he was. Correct. And I could just see, like, full, like, your spine had never been so elongated, <laughs> like, trying yep. to look around, because we thought he would be fairly easy, easily uh, visible based on what he was wearing. He wasn't. But he never took that damn air tag off. <laughs> I'm sure he didn't. After I'm sure that, didn't. and we, oh, and they, they didn't overly complain about wearing them. We let them take them off, um, at night when we were at like a hotel or wherever. But anytime we were outside doing stuff, we were like, "You're gonna wear these," and they didn't mind. It's just like a watch. Yeah, but he learned why we like those. Yep. And then after that, he's like, "I'm gonna stick with them," and he was a little further up in the crowd. Right, but. Oh, God. Maybe that's why he doesn't want other photos from the trip. Maybe it'll just... Maybe if he thinks Disneyland, that's all he thinks of. Oh, oh I don't think so. He seemed like he recovered, you know. Oh, he he did that... God, what's the actual name of it? The Terror Wheel? Oh, it's called something else now. We were calling it Mickey's Death Wheel for a while, but it's the giant yeah. Ferris wheel at California Adventure. Yeah. But it's called he the did, Pixar something now. He did that. Loved it. Yep. Thought it was the greatest thing he's ever done. I've been on it, hated every second of it. Yeah, it's bad. Didn't like it at all, but he loved it. Yeah. So that says a lot for uh, where he's at. Yeah. Yeah. Well, listen, I also, you know, I've reflected over the past two minutes also, and I was like, why was it so stressful for me? I mean, obviously the idea of losing uh, one of your children is – exceedingly stressful but i'm like why did my body have such a stress response and then i realized that i was like you know the last two years of my life i have done so much to alleviate uh stress in my life um that maybe this was just it really felt intolerable because i'm not used to feeling that kind of stress um work stress and stuff like that that's a different story but yeah i mean shout out to me for uh renormalizing my baseline hey There you go. Because I was living in a prolonged state of stress for years because of the men I was with. Of course. And I'll say it now. It's it's them. It is. Yep. Uh, Just such stressful humans that now 
um, that that's been gone for two years, and then you have a have a, a real peak of stress. My God, wow, yeah, it's tough. Yeah, I mean, you handled it really well. God bless you. I mean, you you're great in a crisis situation, and I I'm sure there's a part of you that was like, I was the leader. Yes, I I was the captain. Yep, I should know where everybody is. Yep, wasn't on you. It was it was on me to watch my own child. Um, I I was watching the ones in front of me. Um, it's just it was also like an we'd already been walking around for like three days. Yeah, everybody's tired, so everyone's like further and further back, and suddenly you're walking side by side instead of having them in front of you. And then he just kept walking. But again, the point is barely gone. Yep. And the other point is, I just compared my old baseline in relationships to the feeling of a missing child. (laughs) This is like (laughs) on Sex and the City, where it was like, you just compared your relationship to having cancer. (laughs) Anyway, I hear myself. There is something to unpack there. Oh, yeah. yeah. It's a beautiful thing. Yeah. Well, listen, let's get into it. We're talking about the case uh, Beverly Lynn Smith. A Canadian case, I've heard. Yeah. This week. Canadian case, Oshawa, Ontario. How about it? Yeah. Um, <clears throat> I don't know anything about this case, so I'm going to get all of us, including myself, up to speed right now. 22-year-old Beverly Lynn Smith was shot to death in her own home in December 1974. Despite having numerous leads, it took police more than three decades to put the possible killer behind bars. But... Did police arrest the right man, or did they overlook potential suspects? Join us as we deep-dive Beverly's case, going over the original investigation and sifting through the very long list of things that were missed. Did the police make mistakes because it was their first homicide investigation, or were the mistakes simply a cover-up to protect the real killer? Christy Oxborough investigates. What I love is, since being home, I've gone so hard to try and make sure episodes are ready uh, to the detriment of my own physical health. Sure. Uh, but I've gone so far that I, I've, I'm already like beyond this episode doing another one. So I don't remember yeah. what's in this. And I'm now realizing, I don't know if I really looked it over. But those are my favorite notes. My favorite notes of yours are the ones where you're like, I didn't give this a pre-read before we started. And I'm like, I love it. It might get... Chaotic at best, but it's going to be what it's going to be. So we're all here for it. Oh, and before I get into it, I have a quick update. How about On a previous episode, I mentioned the case of Kristen Smart, the 19-year-old freshman at California Polytech State University who went missing after a party in May 1996. Yes. While she has yet to be found... In April 2021, Paul Flores and his father, Ruben, were arrested in connection with Kristen's disappearance. On October 18th, 2022, Ruben was acquitted. Paul was found guilty of Kristen's murder. And on March 10th, 2023, so up to date, Paul was officially sentenced to 25 years to life. Wow. Again, no body. I mean, my hope is he will realize, oh, I'm in it now. I'm in prison for the next 20 plus years of my life. 
even if you want to be a creep about it and try and make a deal, just tell them where the body is. Well, yeah, because there's also a little thing called double jeopardy. So he can't get charged yeah. for that crime again. So That's true. And it's they're not even if they were like, "Hey, we found where she is." They're not going to char like they're not going to add to his sentence. No. He's already there for life. Just Yeah. Just tell us. But of course, he's probably thinking if I don't tell them, I might get paroled, but it's like, yes. but they're not going to parole you if you don't acknowledge and accept that you've done the crime. If you're like, I'm innocent, they're less likely to parole you. Yep. I just, I mean, I learned that from Ocean's Eleven, so <laughs> maybe not. <laughs> no, I do believe that that's true. I do believe that yeah. that's true. That's because why you they, often see in the like recreations of those parole board meetings, the person being like, I've accepted and I've repented and all those things. That's the thing. They want you to accept what you've done. Yeah. And uh, be willing to s admit that you've done it. Yeah. Because if you're in denial, you're not doing the work. It's so not Paul, just a river in Egypt. Thank you very much. You're very welcome. Paul, do the work. Just tell us where her body is. Yeah. And if you don't want to throw your dad under the bus and admit that he was part of it fine but just say hey there you go yep let her parents have the body and go rot in prison sir yeah that's all Amen. i said so now today's episode i have a disclaimer as i often do Mm -hmm. uh, this episode will contain mentions of suicide, sexual assault, domestic violence, and child death. It will be brief. I will not get into it in graphic detail. Uh, so trigger warning for those who need it. So Beverly Lynn Brown was born in 1952. She had three sisters, an identical twin, Barbara, an older sister, Susan, born in 1950, and a younger sister, Wendy, born in 1956. Beverly met Doug Smith through mutual friends. The couple quickly started dating and were married in July 1971. Beverly was just 18 at the time, so she had to get written permission from her father to legally marry. Doug was about 22 at the time. After the wedding, Beverly and Doug moved to the small hamlet of Raglan on the outskirts of Oshawa, Ontario, Canada. Doug worked the line at General Motors Assembly Plant, the couple lived in a two-story brick farmhouse on Old Simcoe Road. Around March 1974, Beverly and Doug had a daughter, Rebecca. Which, very quickly in this episode, brings us to the day in question. On Monday, December 9th, 1974, Doug woke up around 5 p.m. as he was working the night shift that week. He punched in at work at 5.53 p.m. When it got dark out, Beverly always locked the door, closed the curtains, and called her family, as she didn't like being alone while Doug was working late. On that particular night, Beverly called her parents' house, hoping that someone would come over. Uh, however, her mother Helen had plans to go Christmas shopping, and her twin sister Barbara was headed out on a date. Their phone call ended at 7 p.m. At 8.33 p.m., Doug called home during his 15-minute break, as he always did, but this time, Beverly didn't answer. At 8.35 p.m., Doug called their neighbors across the street, Alan and Linda Smith. No relation. 
that he asked them to check on Beverly. Linda left the phone off the hook as she went across the street and knocked on the door. No one answered. So Linda looked through the window and saw Beverly lying on the floor of the kitchen with blood surrounding her head. Linda ran back across the street and told Doug to get over, told Doug to come home immediately. Linda then sent Alan over to confirm what she had seen. Alan said he went to the house, saw Beverly's body, and ran back to the house where he told Linda to call an ambulance. Alan turned on the emergency light on the top of his work truck to be like a beacon for the emergency vehicles. An ambulance arrived at 8.50 p.m. The attendant, Bill Coburn, said he attempted CPR, but it was obvious that Beverly was already dead. Beverly Lynn Smith was just 22 at the time of her death. She was described as creative, talented, and a kind, sweet soul. Alan Smith told police he broke down the door to get into the house, although later it would be claimed that it was one of the ambulance attendants who broke down the door. When ambulance attendant Bill came out of the house to radio the police, Alan mentioned that Beverly had a child, 10-month-old Rebecca. Bill went back into the house, found Rebecca completely unharmed in a playpen in the room next to the kitchen. Doug arrived home just minutes later. Police found no suspicious footprints or tire tracks at the scene. Nothing at the house seemed to be out of place. It wasn't ransacked or anything like that, so police were quick to dismiss robbery as a motive. There was no sign of forced entry at the scene, which made police believe that Beverly most likely knew her killer. And based on the photos from the crime scene, the deadbolt on the door was locked, which to me means either the killer exited through a back door or the killer had a key to the house. Because to the best of my knowledge, a deadbolt can't be engaged from outside the house without a key. But I could not confirm whether the house had a back exit or not. Beverly's cause of death was not immediately obvious to those at the scene, as her injuries were consistent with a bludgeoning or maybe a potential fall. The next day during the autopsy, x-rays proved that Beverly had been shot once from behind with a twenty-two caliber rifle. There were no other injuries and no signs of a struggle. While no murder weapon was found at the scene, police believe it was likely a Cooey model rifle, which was fairly inexpensive at the time, so it was easily available. There was also no indication that the shot came from outside the house, so we know the killer definitely entered the house. As with most cases, the first person of interest was Beverly's husband, Doug Smith. Since Doug was at work at the time, police were quick to rule him out as a suspect. However, it was later suggested that it would have been possible for Doug to have someone else clock in for him that day. A witness also claimed they saw Doug jump the fence at work around the time Beverly was killed, but no one else could corroborate that, and police ruled him out. So I kind of assume that they likely would have spoken to people who were like, oh, I actually physically saw him. I can't, I shouldn't assume that, but I would like to believe that's true. Yeah. Um, but even if it's true that Doug was possibly the killer, what would his motive have been? Doug allegedly had an affair with a married woman and Beverly found out about it. But to me, that's more of a motive for Beverly to go after Doug 
and not the other way around. But it is possible if he wanted to leave her and she was like, well, you're not taking my child. I could see it going that way, too. Yeah. But to the best of my knowledge, Doug had uh, an alibi, or at least the police said that he did. During the investigation, police learned that Doug Smith was a well-known pot dealer in town. They even found an ounce of marijuana in the kitchen, as well as half a pound of individually wrapped bags in a spare bedroom. Allegedly, there was seven ounces missing from Doug's stash, so it's possible someone stopped by the house to make a purchase on the night of Beverly's death. If the killer was the one who took the drugs, it would make more sense for them to take everything that they could find as opposed to just part of it. I could be wrong. Maybe they just were like, shit, we got to get out of here and didn't bother looking for more. I don't know. But based on Doug's client list, police estimated that 150 people could have stopped by that night. Yeah. Including 18-year-old Mark Avery Kenny, who had outright mentioned to Doug that he might stop by that night. He bought large quantities from Doug and sold it to high school students. Mark said he planned to buy half a pound that night, but he had problems getting the money together, so he never showed up. Police seized Mark's clothing, but never announced whether the items were tested, and if so, whether the test discovered anything. Mark was never arrested for Beverly's murder, but he remained a person of interest until 2008. Police looked into Beverly and Doug's neighbors, Alan and Linda Smith, but they were also ruled out as suspects. Police focused on Dave Maunder, a close friend of Alan and Linda. Dave described himself as a bouncer, although apparently a lot of people said no, he was not. So I find it interesting. I'd love to know what he does, that he tells people he's a bouncer and other people are like, no, he's he's really not. Uh... Oof, where'd I go? There we go. Dave claimed that he didn't know a single thing about the murder. Police received a tip that Doug Daigle was potentially involved. Uh, Daigle was a notorious drug dealer in the area and the main source of Doug Smith's stash. Doug even purchased drugs from Daigle just days before the murder. Daigle admitted at the time he was experimenting with PCP and allegedly said, quote, I might have done it. I don't know. I was stoned. Wow. Yep. There is no official record of Daigle having said this. This is just words uh, from various police officers who supposedly interviewed him. Daigle was arrested on suspicion of murder in 1988 and put into a cell with an undercover police officer in the hopes that Daigle would confess. But he didn't. Due to a lack of evidence, Daigle was released without charge. Doug Daigle later died in 2017. Police soon ran out of leads and the case grew cold. But we couldn't be too surprised this happened. The Durham Regional Police Service was formed in January 1974, less than a year before Beverly's murder. In fact, Beverly's death was the first homicide that police service investigated. And being the first, you know there are bound to be mistakes. Allegedly, the police force was having its Christmas party on the night of Beverly's murder, 
and multiple witnesses said the se- that several of the officers who arrived on scene smelled like alcohol. Ooh. There is no evidence to corroborate that, just multiple witness accounts. There were also problems preserving and collecting evidence. For example, police looked at an ashtray from the Smith's house, which contained a cigarette that had burned down completely on its own. However, in the police report, the number of cigarette butts, as well as the brand, were listed as unknown. Later DNA testing showed one of the cigarettes belonged to Beverly, but the report is not clear as to which one was hers. And then there's the fact that one of the officers put his own cigarette out in that ashtray while at the scene. Of course. I always swear we're going to... Like, I, I always think I've absolutely heard the most crazy thing that a cop has done. Yeah. And then I do another episode and I'm like, oh, no, shit, there's something else. It's yep. just shocking to me. Uh, very few photographs of the scene were taken and not everything was written in the official report. Some of the evidence didn't get collected and some just got lost over the years. Police placed wiretaps on some of the persons of interest in the case, and while there are handwritten notes about some of those recordings, the recordings themselves have been lost. Also missing, the personal notes of multiple officers who visited the scene, as well as an unidentifiable hair that was found in the scrapings under Beverly's fingernails, which was taken during the autopsy. Wow. Police retrieved phone records for Beverly and Doug's home, as well as the persons of interest. However, they, they only checked up to six days before the murder. And then when they thought later, we should check further back, by then the phone company Bell Canada had purged all the records. Ugh. In 1999, a detective went through Beverly's file and made a list of all the things that still needed to be done in that investigation I remind you, she died in 1974. This is a guy looking through it in 1999. That detective found 104 things that were outstanding that did not get done in the previous investigation. Wow. We, of course, don't have time to go through them all. But just to give you an idea as to what was not done in this investigation, I present you with an example of some of the things that yeah. were on this list. Police didn't investigate the fact that Doug Smith's brother, Donald Smith, was a member of the Satan's Choice Motorcycle Club, who at the time were heavily involved in the drug trade in that area. Oh boy. According to a witness, a yellow Buick or GM vehicle was parked in front of Beverly's house on the night of the murder. Police never looked into it, even though a similar vehicle belonged to one of their potential suspects, a man named Jeffrey Sisruk. Crime Stoppers received a tip that Paul Sisruk, Jeff's brother, was seen pumping gas at a service station on the night of the murder, and that Paul was so nervous he spilled gas all over the ground. And then there's a third Sisrick brother, Michael, who outright told his girlfriend Beverly deserved what she got. Wow. Yeah. For what reason? Didn't say. Wow. Despite a potential connection between the Sisrick brothers and the crime scene, police didn't check their fingerprints against any of those found at the scene. Police didn't follow up on multiple suspects, including Ashley Spicer, Charlie Glover, 
Glover, Gary Max Watson, Shane McFadden, James Hutchison, and Mark Corby. Police didn't look into Marilyn Thomas, who worked for Beverly and Doug as their babysitter, and who was also allegedly having an affair with Doug. Oh, boy. Police also didn't look into Marilyn's husband, Thomas. Police didn't investigate Paul Clark, Glenn Locke, or James Brian Thompson, who were involved in a series of break-ins in that area at the time, even though James was also a friend of Doug's. Police didn't speak with Richard Dion, who dated Beverly for three years before she met Doug. At the time of Beverly's murder, Richard was a constable with the Metro Toronto Police. After Beverly's murder, several women in the area with the last name Smith started receiving prank phone calls. The calls were found to come from a man named David Allison, who was not interviewed by police. Oh, wonderful. Police didn't verify Doug Daigle's alibi, despite him being a person of interest. Thomas Solomon, who bought the golf station in Raglan shortly after Beverly's death, said he found a 22 caliber rifle above one of the garage bay doors and he he just he didn't know what to do with it so he just gave it to his mechanic yep wow uh the new detective also determined 17 issues that Doug Smith should have been re-interviewed about Beverly's case remained inactive until the summer of 2006 when Beverly's twin sister Barbara went to the Durham Regional Police to demand that the chief reopen Beverly's case. At first, the chief seemed to ignore Barbara's request, so she went to the Toronto Sun and gave an interview leading to a huge article being published. The police chief eventually realized he needed to take action, so new officers were put on the case, and everyone who was originally interviewed got interviewed again. When re-interviewed in 2007, Dave Maunder said that on the night of Beverly's murder, he was looking for an ounce, and Alan Smith told him he'd be able to get some from his neighbor. Thing is, Dave's story was inconsistent with the facts. First, he said he wanted to get pot for the weekend, as it was already Wednesday, but Beverly was killed on a Monday easy enough over decades to, I guess, forget what day of the week. When Linda, Alan's wife, was re-interviewed, she said she remembered Alan getting something for Dave from Beverly's house. Interesting. <coughs> Linda was interviewed by police for nine hours. Whoa. And throughout those nine hours, her story continually changed. At one point, she claimed Alan got a phone call and she watched him leave. She also claimed she saw Alan standing in their driveway holding a gun. At one point in her interview, Linda claims Dave Maunder called the house looking to buy pot, so Alan offered to go next door to get it. And since Linda was convinced that Alan had a crush on Beverly, Linda went with him. She said once Alan shot Beverly, Linda ran back to their house. Is it possible Alan Smith went to Beverly's house to get pot? She let him inside because she knew him, and in the moment, he decided to kill her instead of paying? Sure. But since Linda was clearly jealous of Beverly, it's also possible Linda walked in on her husband flirting with Beverly, and Linda herself pulled the trigger. 
Police put Dave and Alan in a room together, hoping it would lead to a confession. In the recording, Dave says, quote, I did ask you for an ounce of pot, remember? I asked you for an ounce of pot. You said you were going to go over to the next door neighbors to get it. Alan responded, yeah, but you know what, buddy? That one detective is just relentless. Didn't quite answer the question. Uh, It sounds to me like Alan was, in fact, at the scene of the crime that night. He might not have pulled the trigger, but it feels like he's partially admitting he was there. Yeah. Despite Linda's story being inconsistent, in March 2008, Alan Smith was arrested for second-degree murder, and Linda was charged with obstruction of justice. Soon the charges against Linda were dropped, and four months later, the charges were also dropped against Alan. This is fascinating. Uh, I already have so many questions, mostly oh, about motive, mostly about motive. Yeah. Oh, and the roller coaster is just begun. I had a feeling. Well, listen, on that note, let's hit the can. Let's grab another drink and come right back for more on the Beverly Lynn Smith episode of True Crime and Cocktails. Man, that sunset is gorgeous. Grill, patio, sunset. Hard to get better than that. Unless you're browsing Carvana's inventory while you soak it all in. Oh, burger time. So sit back, get comfortable. Carvana's got thousands of cars under $20,000 just waiting for you. I could stay here forever. Carvana, where car buying meets comfort meets convenience. Download the app or visit Carvana.com today. That's not just the sound of that first sip of Morning Joe. It's the sound of someone shopping for a car on Carvana from the comfort of home. That's a good blend. It's time to take it easy, like answering some easy questions to get pre-qualified for a car in minutes. Talk about starting the morning right. Just like customizing your terms so your car fits your budget. Mm-mm-mm. Visit Carvana.com or download the app to experience car shopping the way it should be. Convenient. Comfortable. Ah. Welcome back to this episode of True Crime and Cocktails. We're, of course, discussing the Beverly Lynn Smith case. Before the break, I became confounded. (laughs) Confounded by this case, by what the motives may or may not be. And Christy told me the roller coaster was just getting started. Yeah, so what's next? Well, I mentioned Alan Smith, who was arrested in March 2008 and then released. It may seem like I'm done with Alan, but I'm just getting started. So Alan Dale Smith was born in 1950. He was one of nine siblings. Over the years, Alan was diagnosed with mood disorders and depression. He even attempted to take his own life multiple times. Alan also struggles with drugs and alcohol and said that sometimes he hears voices. At the time of Beverly's murder in 1974, Alan worked for the Humane Society as an animal control officer and lived across the street from Beverly and Doug Smith. Again, no relation. Alan was married to a woman named Linda. They had a young daughter. Alan and Linda split up in the mid-90s, and Linda later claimed that Alan had been mentally and emotionally abusive towards her. 
When police first questioned Linda in 1974, she claimed Alan was with her all night. Then in 2007, when Dave Maunder placed Alan at the scene, Linda changed her story to say that Alan might have left the house that night. Then Linda said Alan left the house for about an hour, during which time she heard a loud noise like a car backfiring. In another version of events, Linda claimed she saw Alan put a rifle in his work van and even told the police to check the parking lot of the Humane Society as Linda believed Alan buried the gun there. The parking lot was dug up, but no gun was found. Linda then admitted she had no idea where the weapon was, but she just came to a, quote, logical conclusion as to where it might be. Oh, boy. At one point, Linda even claimed she shot Beverly herself. Linda had a 30-day assessment at a psychiatric facility, after which she said she was confident that Alan had pulled the trigger that night. Every time Linda was interviewed, her story changed. Linda once claimed Beverly was writing Christmas cards at the kitchen table. But when police arrived at the house, all of the Christmas cards were on the coffee table in another room. But for some reason, police had what you may call tunnel vision when it came to Alan Smith, and they truly believed that he was Beverly Smith's killer. However, they didn't have any evidence linking Alan to the scene, especially after Linda recanted her statements. So despite his arrest on March 17, 2008, for second-degree murder, Alan was released. Then Alan's luck appeared to change. In February 2009, he won a contest. The prize was an all-expenses-paid ice-fishing trip on Lake Simcoe. Alan loved fishing so much, one of his sisters said, He could do it 24 hours a day if he was allowed. During the trip, Alan met a fellow winner of of the contest and fishing enthusiast named Danny, a carpenter who sold weed on the side. The two men hit it off and exchanged numbers with plans to go fishing together again. The men soon became good friends, talking on the phone or hanging out every single day. They went for coffee. They went on long drives. They ran errands. They took fishing trips together. Their friendship was so close that they referred to each other as brother. Few weeks into their friendship, Danny confessed to Alan that 30 years earlier, when a girl he liked got into a drunk driving accident, killing the passenger, Danny moved the passenger's body into the driver's seat so the girl would appear to be innocent. Clearly a test to prove Alan's loyalty, Soon after, Danny started asking Alan to help him out with things like stealing a boat to commit insurance fraud and, you know, just a few small drug deals. In April 2009, Danny introduced Alan to Jack, a crime boss that Danny worked for. Alan agreed to help Danny with a few jobs for Jack. On June 25, 2009, they sold 40 pounds of marijuana to one of Jack's clients, and hours later, not only robbed that client of the money, they also took back the 40 pounds. Jack was happy about the job, but the client figured out that Jack ripped him off, so he approached Jack and the two men had an altercation. On July 7th, around 1 a.m., Danny went to Alan's house to say Jack had a problem and he needed their help. When Danny and Alan arrived at Jack's cottage, they found him covered in blood next to a body wrapped in a blue tarp. 
Jack explained that the client realized he was being double-crossed. They got into an argument, and Jack said he, quote, took care of it. Jack then asked Danny and Alan to get him clean clothes and to dispose of the body. Alan later told police he was so anxious during the whole thing, he nearly threw up. Danny and Alan drove to a cliff near Pigeon Lake and tossed the body over. They then burned Jack's clothes in a field and drove back to Jack's cottage, where Jack refused to let anyone leave. Jack said he didn't like the idea that Alan and Danny had something to hold over his head, and according to Alan, Jack told them no one was leaving until they told him something he could use against them as leverage. Alan also claims Jack was holding a knife at the time. Alan told Jack in 1974 his neighbor was murdered and that he was in on it. Alan claimed he and his friend Dave Maunder stole 40 pounds of marijuana from his neighbor and Dave shot the neighbor in her kitchen. And while Alan was clearly talking about Beverly, there was never 40 pounds of marijuana in that house, which feels like a made-up number, but it's coincidentally the same amount involved in that drug deal where Alan and Danny double-crossed Jack's client. So maybe that's where he got the amount from. During a later meeting with Jack on November 9, 2009, Alan admitted to being involved in Beverly's death, but this time he said Dave Maunder wasn't involved. Despite claiming he was innocent multiple times in that same conversation, Alan confessed that he alone killed Beverly to stop her from, quote, snitching about this chick I was banging. A quote from Alan from that very conversation. Quote, I had the gun right behind my back all the time. She never did see the fucking gun. She let me right in the house just like a fucking neighbor. And she went up to the kitchen to get the baby's bottle. I just followed her right in the back. I took one shot in the back of her head. That was it. And then I played stupid after that ever since. It should also be noted in that same conversation, Alan also said he had no idea who killed Beverly and claimed his own innocence nine separate times. But Jack kept pushing and Alan finally said Dave Maunder was innocent and he got greedy stood 10 feet from Beverly and shot her. Alan started getting angry that Jack hadn't cut them in on the money that Jack stole from the man that he killed. So in December 2009, Alan and Danny went to see Jack about it. Jack handed them both envelopes and drove off. But inside the envelopes were just stacks of paper. And before Alan could figure out what was going on, police pulled up and Alan was arrested for the first-degree murder of Beverly Lynn Smith. When Alan and Danny sat in a cell together, Alan said, quote, every chance I get, I'll look for you there. But Alan would not see Danny in prison because Danny wasn't a carpenter with a weed business on the side. Danny was an undercover police officer. I knew it. And everything involved with Danny and Alan, including the ice fishing trip where they met, was all just an elaborate ruse. But what about the body? We'll get there. Sorry. No, no, you're doing great. Uh, I say ruse. Specifically, I mean a Canadian police investigative technique known as Mr. Big. <laughs> also a great band and character from the aforementioned television show in this episode, Sex in the City. And that's 
full circle, baby. Synchronicity. I love it. Oh my God, I almost forgot about the Mr. Big Band, right? Uh, so the technique is usually used in cold cases involving murder, and it involves undercover police officers who do almost anything it takes to get a confession from a specific suspect. The officers build a relationship with the suspect, gain their confidence, then enlist their help in some sort of criminal act. Once the suspect is brought in, they are then asked about their criminal history in an attempt to get them accepted into some sort of criminal organization. The whole point is to give the person of interest a false sense of belonging or some sense of brotherhood. The Mr. Big technique was developed by the Royal Canadian Mounted Police, RCMP, in British Columbia in 1965 while they were investigating David, David Lewis Harrison. David, a former constable with the Vancouver Police, was believed to have taken part in a robbery of $1.2 million worth of cancelled currency from the Canadian Pacific Merchandise Services Warehouse. David confessed involvement to an undercover police officer who was posing as a mob boss. David was eventually convicted, although he said he only confessed because he feared the crime boss and any sort of retribution he may cause. David said the man often had a gun and he carried a vial of nitroglycerin around his neck, which the man said he would throw at a police car if it ever got close enough. This feels risky, but... Between 1965 and 2008, the Mr. Big technique was used in Canada in more than 350 cases. The RCMP claims that in 75% of those cases, the person of interest was either cleared or charged. The other 25% remained unsolved. Of the cases that were prosecuted, 95% resulted in a conviction. Depending on the case, as many as 50 to 100 undercover officers can be involved in a single sting. Uh, they help create, quote, a steady escalation in association, influence, and pressure leading up to the creation of an atmosphere in which it is deemed appropriate to encourage the target to confess. According to the CBC, some operations can cost up to $300,000 just to run. The goal is to build trust and use it to draw out information that can be used as evidence. It starts with the officers putting the person of interest or suspect under extensive surveillance for weeks to learn the person's habits. They use that information to create a way for the person of interest to meet an undercover officer who weasels their way into the suspect's life, building a trust between them. The undercover officer then exploits the new friendship by asking for small favors, which become increasingly illegal. Soon the person of interest is brought into what they believe is a criminal organization. They're offered money and friendship, something that most of the suspects lack. After a while, the person of interest is then introduced to Mr. Big, who is the fictitious kingpin of this organization. But Mr. Big is actually a trained police interrogator whose job is to use any threats necessary to get the person of interest to confess to a specific crime. The technique is a last resort in cold cases and is mostly used in a case where police believe they know who the killer is. They just don't have enough evidence for an arrest. 
Police in Australia and New Zealand have used the Mr. Big technique before, but it is prohibited in the United States and the UK. Something that the United States is like, woof, we wouldn't do it. And Canada is like, oh, we love it, is shocking to me. Well, it's also interesting no that, offense, the, that the UK has aligned with the United States. Right? Yeah. So, since we're speaking Mr. Big, I have four specific examples of when this technique was used. The first, October 1983. German tourists Bernard Gorich and Andrea Sherpoff were murdered in northeastern British Columbia while hitchhiking across the country. The killer gave the couple a ride in a 1960s Chevy pickup truck before shooting them and dumping their bodies 32 kilometers or 20 miles away. The killer left a pair of blood-spattered jeans in a nearby trash can and stole the victim's traveler's checks, which they used to buy gas in Prince George, McLeese Lake, Lac La Hache, and Hundred Mile House. Andrea and Bernard's bodies were found October 6th, and they were properly identified October 16th. They were 23 and 27 years old, respectively. Over the next few years, over 900 tips were collected, but the case remained unsolved. A witness named Madonna Mary Kelly told an undercover police informant that a man named Andy Rose arrived on her doorstep, quote, drunk and covered in blood, claiming to have killed two people. Not to be confused with footballer Andy Rose, for anyone who's big on uh, soccer, a.k.a. football, which, if you ask, I know like three players of all time, and that's it. And all three of them are probably just David Beckham. (laughs) Oh, no, there's that. Who's that hot? Oh, Spain, Argentina, fuck, Christian. Who's that hot guy? They fucked up his bronze. Ronaldo? Yes. Yeah. Yeah, that's on the list. There you I feel go. guilty for uh, probably getting his country wrong, but again, I don't get fo- I don't I don't get soccer. But based on Madonna's testimony, Andy was convicted in 1991 and sentenced to a minimum of 15 years in prison. Due to a technicality, Andy's conviction was overturned in 1992, and a new trial was ordered. In 1994, Andy was again sentenced to a minimum of 15 years. Andy was released on bail in 1997 after his conviction was again overturned due to another technicality. The prosecution planned to go after a third conviction. However, there was concern the witness was off on her timing by maybe two weeks. But there was also a man in California who confessed to his wife that he murdered two people. The man's details of the crime were consistent with what the police already knew, but the man took his own life before he could be arrested. In March 1996, DNA tests revealed there was no traces of Andy on the genes that were found at the scene. Andy was released on bail in 1998, pending a third trial in 2001. In January 1999, an undercover police officer spent eight months trying to gain Andy's trust to obtain a confession. The officer became Andy's friend, and got him to do some illegal activities, which earned Andy some much-needed money. 
Andy was then told the gang could protect him and make it so he'd never have to go back to prison. But he'd have to become a full gang member in order to get that protection, which meant impressing Mr. Big. So in July 1999, Andy repeatedly told Mr. Big he was innocent of the murders. Knowing Andy had a history with alcohol abuse, Mr. Big started feeding Andy alcohol. And after a few beers, Andy confessed. The Crown filed for a third trial, and Andy was acquitted in 2001. The idea that the police knew the DNA didn't match Andy as far back as 96, and yet kept pushing for a confession because they were convinced Andy was the killer based on a witness who might not have even had the date right? And then to take advantage of his struggles with alcohol to get a confession? I'm going to say it. Gross. It's gross. gross. It's gross. Be better, RCMP. Yeah. As of March 2023, Bernard Gorich and Andrea Sherpiff's deaths have remained unsolved. Second example of Mr. Big, June 22nd, 1990, 19-year-old Kyle Unger attended a music festival near his hometown in Roseisle, Manitoba. Also in attendance was 16-year-old Bridget Grenier. Between midnight and 1.30 a.m., Bridget was seen dancing and kissing 17-year-old Timothy Houlihan. Bridget was last seen by Kyle in a wooded area with Timothy. Between 4 and 4.30 a.m., Timothy was seen with his clothes covered in mud, and his face covered in scratches. The next day, Bridget's body was found in a creek in a wooded area near the concert grounds. She had been bitten, struck in the head several times, strangled, and sexually assaulted. Blood on Timothy's shoes was found to be consistent with that of the victim, and a hair on Bridget's pants was a match for Timothy. A single hair found on Bridget's sweater for some reason, was believed to belong to Kyle Unger. So Kyle and Timothy were both interviewed by the RCMP, and while they noticed visible markings on Timothy's face, they didn't make an official statement, or they didn't get an official statement from him at the time because Timothy was a minor and his parents were not there when he was interviewed. <clears throat> In his first official statement to police, Timothy told police he had consensual sex with Bridget, and he was then attacked by an unknown male. Timothy gave a description of his attacker, which weirdly enough matched Kyle Unger. In a second statement to police, Timothy outright said Kyle was responsible for Bridget's death, and he gave a very specific description of the crime scene. But since police didn't have a lot of evidence against Kyle prior to the trial, they asked 20 inmates if any would be willing to testify that Kyle confessed to the crime. Five said they would, but they only used one of them at trial. The inmate, who claims Kyle outright admitted to killing Bridget, later admitted he lied to getting good with the police. The fact that they went, hey, does anybody want this job? Does anybody want to lie for us in court? I mean... Fuck off. Again, not impressed with you, RCMP. Nope. So in June 1991, police used a Mr. Big operation to befriend Kyle and offer him a place in a fictitious gang. Kyle was told that to join them and be part of their lucrative lifestyle, Kyle needed to prove that he had previously committed a serious crime. So Kyle confessed to killing Bridget. 
Kyle later said at the time of his confession, he was young, naive, and desperate for money. And even though he got some of the key facts wrong about the murder, his confession was used against him, and Kyle and Timothy were both convicted and sentenced to life in prison. Oh my God. Timothy was the only witness to claim to have seen Kyle kill Bridget, took his own life in 1994 while they were waiting for a new trial. In 2005, the hair found on Bridget's sweater was DNA tested and found not to be a match to Kyle. In 2009, the federal justice minister determined that Kyle's conviction was most likely a miscarriage of justice, and Kyle was acquitted after spending 14 years in prison. In 2011, Kyle filed a $14.5 million lawsuit against the RCMP for the Mr. Big Sting that led to his arrest. In April 2019, Kyle and Manitoba's Justice Department reached a out-of-court settlement. Mm -hmm. And while it is likely that Timothy had something to do with Bridget Grenier's death, as of March 2023, her death remains unsolved. The third example involves Nelson Hart. And this one will be difficult to hear, but again, we're going to just buzz right through it. Uh, Nelson was charged in June 2005 with the deaths of his twin daughters in Little Harbor, Newfoundland. Krista and Karen, who were just three at the time, drowned at Gander Lake on August 4th, 2002. Nelson told police they were playing on a small wharf when Krista fell into the water. Because Nelson can't swim, he panicked and ran to get help leaving Karen at the wharf. He then drove home, got his wife, returned to the scene. I know. Uh, Karen died at the scene. Krista was found alive, but later died at hospital. Nelson also claimed that he had a seizure at one point when Krista fell into the water. So in October 2002, police started surveillance in their Mr. Big operation. Early in the investigation, they learned Nelson was socially isolated, He went everywhere with his wife, and he had only a fourth-grade education. They also learned that Nelson had a history of seizures, which were made worse following a car accident in 1998. At first, the undercover officers had Nelson do odd jobs for them, such as making deliveries. The undercover officer, who was now posing as Nelson's friend, then got Nelson into dealing counterfeit casino chips, forged passports, and fake credit cards. Nelson was made to believe he was part of a nationwide gang, and he and his wife were sent on luxurious trips, extravagant shopping sprees, all of this across the country. In the spring of 2003, Nelson was introduced to Mr. Big, who told Nelson before he could fully join their gang, they needed to clear the air about Nelson's past, namely the deaths of his daughters. Mr. Big said he didn't buy Nelson's seizure excuse, and Nelson eventually confessed to pushing his kids off the wharf. Mr. Big brought some undercover officers to the wharf where they made Nelson reenact the drownings. The entire thing was videotaped, and that videotape was used at his trial. In March 2007, Nelson was convicted of two counts of first-degree murder and sentenced to life in prison with no parole for at least 25 years. Nelson appealed for a new trial in 2012, saying he was pressured to confess as he wanted so badly to join the gang that he simply told Mr. Big what he wanted to hear. 
The appeal court felt that Nelson's charter rights had been violated, and he had been coerced into making a confession. His confession was thrown out, and the Supreme Court of Canada upheld the decision, saying the Mr. Big technique creates unreliable confessions, prejudices the jury, and creates an opportunity for police misconduct. The prosecutors decided not to go through another trial, and Nelson was released after spending nine years in prison. A fourth and final example of the Mr. Big tactic, because it took place just 146 kilometers or 91 miles from my hometown of Moose Jaw, Saskatchewan. Hey! 51-year-old Sherry Furtuck was last seen December 7th, 2015. The next day, Sherry's semi-truck was found abandoned at a gravel pit near Keniston, Saskatchewan, which is a great place to pee if you're driving from Moose Jaw to Saskatoon because it's almost halfway. (laughs) A small spot of blood on the vehicle's tailgate was a match to Sherry Furtuck. Police checked the area again in April 2016 after the snow had melted and they discovered two shell casings where the semi had been. While Sherry's body has never been found, police arrested Sherry's husband, Greg Furtuck, in June 2019 and charged him with first-degree murder. After a year-long Mr. Big operation, Greg confessed to shooting Sherry twice with a Ruger 10-22 and ditching the gun west of Saskatoon, which is about 84 kilometers or 52 miles northwest of Keniston. But now, he says he only confessed because he feared the undercover officers who, at the time, Greg believed were criminals. Greg said, quote, I made it up, and we, were, we went out supposedly looking for the body. Well, there is no body. So we just drove around to these different places because it was all BS. I didn't kill her, and there was no body out there. In November 2011, a couple found a Ruger 1022 under a grain bin on their property just west of Saskatoon. The markings on the shell casings from the crime scene seem to be a match to those found that came from the gun that was found on the couple's property. Greg has pleaded not guilty. His trial started in 2021, but was delayed because of COVID outbreaks and then the discovery of the potential murder weapon. As of March 2023, his trial is still ongoing. Oh, wow. Yeah. But some things that have come up in the trial so far. Sherry and Greg got married in 1991. Between 2010 and 2012, they separated twice. In that same time frame, Greg was arrested for assaulting and threatening Sherry in two separate domestic violence incidents. In December 2015, just before her her disappearance, Sherry filed for divorce and refused to release Greg's $430,000 pension until they worked out a property division. And if that isn't damning enough, Greg's cell phone pinged a tower near the pit where Sherry was working on December 7th, the last day she was seen. Greg claims he went to the pit looking for her, but she wasn't there. Mm -hmm. Uh, For those interested in digging a little deeper, into that particular case, there is a seven-part podcast by CBC called The Pit, which focuses solely on Sherry's case. As seen in these previous examples, the Mr. Big technique is most successful when the person of interest is struggling financially and is isolated socially, just like Alan Smith. The operation 
was dubbed Project Fearless. It was launched months after Allen was released from prison in July 2008. They kept him under close surveillance and even read through his hospital records, which I did not think was legal. What do I know? I don't know that it is, but... Nope. Allen spent some time in various treatment facilities for alcohol and drug problems, as well as depression and suicide attempts. On a hospital self-assessment questionnaire from 1996, Allen wrote, quote, I seem to belong nowhere. I am very lonely, unhappy. I do not have any friends except my ex-wife. Which, again, doesn't feel legal to read. But while looking through Alan's files, they discovered he had a great love of fishing. So Project Fearless created a fake contest where they contacted Alan and said, Hey, guess what? You won an ice fishing trip. An undercover officer picked up Alan and a few other, quote, contest winners who were actually just undercover officers, including Alan's soon-to-be BFF, Danny, who was actually an officer named Skinner. The drug deals that Alan helped Danny with were all staged. The body that Alan helped dump was a weighted down mannequin wrapped in a tarp. Wow. And Jack was covered in sheep's blood. I did not dig into where they got the blood for that. Most of Alan's interactions with the officers were recorded. Police ended up with 1,500 hours of recordings, although it was mostly just two guys fishing together. Some of the records involved the undercover officers making jokes about Alan being frantic and laughing that Alan is so stressed he might uh, go hang himself. The officers involved later claimed they were only joking around and they weren't previously aware of Alan's mental health struggles, which is interesting since we know they looked through Alan's medical history files to concoct the scheme for the operation. You can't say you didn't know when you used that very thing to create what you did against it. Yeah. And when it comes to a Mr. Big operation, the suspect or person of interest's confession is the entire case. Without it, the operation is a failure. So it explains why undercover officers push so hard for a confession. Doesn't excuse it, but it explains it. Yeah. Based on Alan's second confession to Jack, he was arrested in December 2009. In 2013, during a pretrial motion, Alan's lawyers submitted a motion to exclude Alan's confession. They argued their client had been a victim of extraordinary and relentless police conduct and that he had been in fear for his life when he confessed. His lawyers said, quote, a conviction based solely on a series of unreliable statements coerced under threat of life and limb by the police would surely bring the administration of justice into disrepute. In Allen's first confession, he claimed he had a partner, Dave Maunder. In the second confession, he claimed he worked alone. Throughout the confessions, Allen repeatedly changed the location of the murder weapon. At one point, he said he stole 40 pounds of marijuana. Doug Smith said there was less than a pound missing from the house. An Ontario Superior Court justice said Allen's stories were so full of holes that you could, quote, drive a Mack truck through them. The justice found Allen's confession to be an abusive process and that it violated Allen's charter rights. And while the judge believed the confession was coerced, 
The judge also believed the police investigated in good faith because they looked into other suspects and didn't just focus on Allen. To me, it feels more like the officer stuck on just Allen once he was a suspect. I'm not a cop or a judge, but yeah, they looked into other people. Once they got Allen, they refused to look anywhere else. But even a judge found Allen's confession to be coerced, but still no officers in Project Fearless were ever disciplined for pushing him the way that they did. In June 2014, Allen was acquitted and released after spending four and a half years in prison. In July 2014, the Supreme Court of Canada placed new restrictions for trial judges in cases involving Mr. Big Stings. The court said that while the Mr. Big technique proved an effective investigative tool, it comes with a price. The court's main concern could be divided into three potential problems. One, unreliable confessions lead to wrongful convictions. That happened in three of the four examples I gave prior to this. Two, stings run the risk of potential police misconduct. When they're allowed, anything goes to get a confession. I mean, come on. Uh, And three, the confessions come with evidence that the accused took part in simulated crimes, which, quote, sullies the accused's character and in doing so carries the risk of prejudice. Since the ruling, confessions obtained under Mr. Big Operations are now automatically considered inadmissible unless the court can prove their value as evidence outweighs their capacity to negatively impact the outcome of the trial. In January 2016, Alan Smith filed a $19 million lawsuit against the Ontario Provincial Police, police service boards overseeing the Durham Regional Police, the Attorney General of Ontario, nearly a dozen police officers who were involved in the sting, and three Crown attorneys. The Court of Appeal ruled that the Crown attorneys were not liable, so Allen has since filed other lawsuits for the other defendants. Those are currently uh, ongoing. But assuming that Allen is innocent... I think more than the prison time, I feel worse for him about his friendship with Danny because he truly believed he found a friend, something he'd been longing for. And when he finally connected with someone, they turn out to be a cop who was faking the friendship to get information. But that's part of the reason the Mr. Big Sting works to begin with. It gives a lonely person a sense of belonging and friendship. And some of those people are happy to have the companionship and they're willing to commit crimes to keep those friends. Believing even until that last moment that Danny was his friend is just so heartbreaking to me. The truth about Danny affected Alan so much, he gave up fishing. Oh, God. Yeah, he just couldn't do it again. How is Alan ever supposed to trust another human being again? After he was released from prison, Alan said, quote, I'll never get over what was done to my family, what it's done to me personally. Due to his time in prison, some of Alan's siblings will no longer speak to him, even though he was wrongfully put in prison. Oh, wow. So before I wrap this up, I have some unanswered questions. Yeah. (laughs) About all of this. It might be nothing, but for whatever reason, these are things that stand out to me. And if I'm bothered by it, 
then I'm going to bother our dear listeners with it. That's how this relationship works. It always has. Uh, These items are in no particular order. So Beverly was on the phone with her family until 7 p.m. She was found dead at 8.35 p.m. So we know she was shot sometime between 7 and 8.35. And yet, not one of her neighbors heard that gunshot? I assume most would have been awake at the time. And yes, Linda claimed to have heard the shot, but I don't buy most of what Linda is selling. I think Linda suffered years of mental and emotional abuse, and by the time she was interviewed, she was willing to say whatever necessary to make people happy. I am not a psychologist in any way. That's just where I'm at with that. Mm -hmm. But I also read that at the time of Beverly's murder, one of her neighbors was outside stringing Christmas lights up, and they didn't hear anything or see anything. It just feels like someone knows or heard something and they just have refused to come forward for whatever reason. Mm. Another question I have, Alan's work schedule. In the Amazon documentary that I watched, Alan said he worked for four hours and then went home for supper at 7.05. He kept repeating that he went home because it was his supper time. My question is, was his shift over? Or was he just on a meal break? Because if, if it was over, you'd think he would have said, I headed, ho- I worked f- my shift and went home. Not, I went home for supper, specifically. It sounds to me like, I would su- th- that sounds to me like he's saying it was just for his like lunch break. But the timeline That's doesn't I, add right. up. No. Because he clocked in. Did he not clock in at 6.53 or, so, or 5? Oh, or, that, sorry. Was, that was Doug. Excuse me. Of course. But he but if it was a supper break, which I'm leaning towards because that's what he specifically was saying, he got home at 7:05. And when Doug called at 8:35, Alan was still at home. Now I'm following who, you. Yep. Who gets an hour and a half lunch break from nope. work? No. Nope. If it was the end of your shift, you say, "And my shift was done and I went home." You don't say, "I went home for supper because it was my supper time." Yeah, that's weird. Like that was just a, it was a weird way of saying it. Yeah. Again, it's probably nothing, but it sticks in my head and I can't let it go. Yep. Uh, according to timeanddate.com, the sun set in Oshawa at 4.38 p.m. on the day Beverly was murdered. Beverly's family said that when Doug worked night shifts, Beverly closed the curtains tight when it got dark out. But when Linda and Alan went to the house around 8.30, the curtains were opened wide enough they could see Beverly lying on the floor. Great point. So my question is, why were the curtains open? Did she just not close them tight enough? Were they wide open? I'd like to know how open they were. When police first arrived on scene, Alan told them he kicked in the door. But every report I read said that it was the ambulance attendants who kicked in the door. There was a boot mark on the outside of the door. Surely it would be easy to compare the bootmark, to Alan's footwear to see if he was lying. When he was interviewed a second time in 1988, a detective mentioned this inconsistency to Alan, and he said, quote, Yeah, no, um, if I did, then I retract that statement because it was the ambulance attendant. So why'd you say you did it at all? That's weird. 
Uh, Allen voluntarily took a polygraph test in 2007, and while I know they aren't admissible in court, the polygraph operator saw deception in Allen's chart, and he believes somehow Allen was involved in Beverly's murder. Linda then took a polygraph test, and there was also deception in her results. However, when Linda was asked, did you shoot Beverly? She said no. The answer was seen as deceptive. When asked if she knew who shot Beverly, Linda said no, and her answer was seen as truthful. Logically, we know that if Linda did shoot Beverly, that means she would know who killed Beverly. So her two results can't coexist, hence why these results tend to be inadmissible in court. Beverly's sisters and her daughter all believe that Alan Smith was Beverly's killer. And honestly, I am torn. He was in the right place at the right time, but he just doesn't seem to have a motive. Would he really kill someone over less than a pound of weed? Or was Alan telling the truth when he confessed and said that Beverly was going to tell Linda that Alan was cheating on her? Then there's the recording of Alan's first confession to Jack, where Alan said that he and Dave Maunder planned to steal from Doug and that they'd been watching him for a while, the direct quote from Alan in that confession was, quote, We had it set up that when Doug went to work at General Motors at six at night, we were going in just shortly after to get the 40 pounds. I went in, I ran upstairs, got the 40 pounds. He was downstairs. He had a 22 with him just for backup. She ran toward the cupboard, and Dave doesn't know she what she was running for, whether it was a handgun, just a normal rifle, whatever, so he plugged her in the back of the head. And while the 40 pounds was incorrect, the rest of the story seems plausible. Alan was right about when Doug's shift started, so maybe there is truth to the confession more so than what we thought. And it is possible that Doug really did have 40 pounds of weed in the house and that he lied to police because he worried he'd get charged with something, but I'd like to think that Doug would want to catch the man who killed his wife. Even if it meant admitting he had 40 pounds of weed in his house. But I could be wrong. The thing is, when Alan and Dave Maunder were put in a room together, Dave said, quote, Who could have done it in our circle because it was somebody we knew? And Alan responded, quote, Well, it wasn't me. So if Alan's initial confession was true and Dave was the shooter, then Alan would have immediately questioned why Dave was asking who did it. Or he would have immediately said, well, obviously you did, guy. So just so many of his things seem plausible, but then in the end just don't work out. And I may be on the fence about whether or not Alan is guilty. I have to make sure that I state there is no evidence at the crime scene that put Alan in Beverly's house and no evidence that put a gun in Alan's hands. And Alan's potential injustice aside, there is still the fact that someone entered Beverly's home in December 1974, shot her, and left her for dead while her infant daughter was in the next room. What kind of monster is capable of that, and what was their motive? Durham Police does not have a cold case unit. Each de new detective on the homicide squad is assigned a cold case to tackle, but as new cases come up, the older cases get pushed to the side. 
Many investigators have looked at Beverly's case, but as of March 2023, the case remains unsolved. It is the oldest unsolved case in Durham history. Reporting for True Crime and Cocktails, I'm Christy Oxborough. Wowzer, what a journey. You were correct on that. Yeah. Well, listen, let's take one more break, hit the can one more time, grab one more drink, and we'll be right back to wrap it up this episode, to wrap it up this episode, to wrap up the episode. Doing great. Beverly Lynn Smith on True Crime and Cocktails. Delve into the shadows of the mind with Sleeping Dogs, a gripping murder mystery starring Academy Award winner Russell Crowe. Now available on digital. Crowe portrays an ex-homicide detective, unraveling a brutal murder he can't recall. Uncovering secrets from his past, he learns a chilling truth. It's best to let sleeping dogs lie. Visit sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery to watch Sleeping Dogs, now on digital. That's sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. Welcome back to this episode of True Crime and Cocktails. We're, of course, discussing Beverly Lynn Smith. Wow, so much to talk about here. This is a truly wild one that took turns I simply didn't see coming. Hey! Now... I'm just going to jump all around as I am wont to do. Of course. Do you think there's any world in which, go with me. I can't wait. That Doug was connected in some way. Hear me out. It seems odd to me, the, the motive with Alan, even though it does feel like he was absolutely involved in some way, the motive feels muddled to me. Because if they were planning to rob Doug... And they had been watching his every move as, you know, Alan being a neighbor. Yeah. Why would you choose a time when anyone was home? Unless your intention was to kill her. It definitely feels like it was more specifically targeted to her as opposed to targeted for theft. Because to me, the fact that Doug called her, there was no answer, and then he called Linda and Alan. There has to be some level of closeness between those two couples, if that's his first call. Will you check on her? Yeah. So my question just is, we were so quick to write off Doug. Is it possible that he could have been involved? Oh, there's absolutely a world in which he... She was like, you're cheating on me. I'm done with you. And he's like, okay, great. Give me the kid. And she's like, you'll never see me or this kid again. Yeah. It's more than possible. And he was like, well, I need her out of the way. Right. He could be completely innocent. He could be partially involved. I mean. Because again, when you were like, 
you know, would a man kill? Why wouldn't he just get a divorce? And I feel like, yes, that is logical, but there are those cases like that American murder documentary on Netflix where rather than admitting to wanting a divorce, the guy whose name is eluding me killed his wife and two children. Oh, was that the Watts guy? Yeah. Right, right. You know, and you you do hear about these cases sometimes where men will, rather than just ask for a divorce, it's like easier to kill the family or kill the wife, which is, I I mean. It's, it's crazy. Lunacy. Yes. Lunacy. But there is also a part of them that's like, well, I don't want to see somebody else have you. Right. And it's also, I think, sometimes it could also be like, it'll be easier. Going through a divorce and child custody and all those things, that's a right. lot of work, a lot of time, a lot of money. And I think for a proper emotionless sociopath, yep. right? Oh, yeah. So that's the only reason why I bring him up again is that I was like, it just feels odd to me that he was close enough to Alan to make that phone call. Mm-hmm. But if they were that close, Alan would have no trouble or problem being involved in the murder of Beverly? I do find it interesting that he was the second call as opposed to call her family and be like, have you heard from her? Right. Because I'm calling her and I haven't heard anything. Right. I don't know. It just doesn't sit. It doesn't make sense to me. And the only other thing I'm going to say, now listen, I don't know what that area was like at the time, but everybody involved, all these people involved, so many of them, it was like, and they were also a drug dealer, and they were also dealing drugs, and they were also whatever. And it's interesting yep. to me that there was so much of that amongst this group of all these people yeah. that knew each other. You know, it definitely feels to me like, it definitely feels to me like it just, I don't know. There's some piece of it that just isn't there that doesn't make sense to me. Well, that's the thing. Is it possible that she was like, I don't like you selling drugs out of our house. We have a young child. I hate people coming here to buy drugs from me when I'm terrified of being here alone as it is in the dark. Right. Because what what was the reasoning be behind her being afraid of being alone? Was it just that she was afraid of, you know, scared of being alone in the house? Could be that simple. But was it also because people are showing up at all hours to buy drugs and now we have a little kid and this is freaking me out? Oh, it could be. It could be her being like, you need to stop. I can't stand this. And he was like, well, I'm not going to stop for you. And what yeah. if we divorce, you could go to the cops and tell them. That I'm a dealer. Yeah. Because he was not just a dealer. He was well known for that's what he did. Yeah. I don't know. The fact that there was a list of 150 people that could potentially have stopped by. Yeah. Which proves, I guess, how many drug dealers they needed in the area at the time. It doesn't feel like, I mean, listen, I guess it was the 70s, but. Oh, it's wild how many people, like, it's also like he bought he always bought from one guy and then there was another guy who would buy a lot from him and then go sell to high school kids. And it was, it was like a pyramid scheme, but with drugs. Yeah. And I guess for me, it just feels like if the demand is that great and there's all of that going on, then it's also more than possible that there would be like intense rivalries. Yeah. 
but again, I don't know. It's the details of how, because I do, it does sound like it makes the most sense that Alan and Dave probably were the ones involved. What doesn't make sense to me is that motive, given all this other information. Yeah. To me, it's like you would wait for everyone to be out of the house if it was just a robbery, if you were also oh, close yeah. to her. Oh, 100%. It's, were, did you do it for the sake of helping Doug? Um, did you hit on her and she said no and was like, right. I'm going to tell him, I'm going to tell your wife, I'm going to tell all these people. But again, well, there was no struggle. So he very clearly, whoever killed her, did it when her back was turned. So she obviously trusted whoever this was enough to let them in the house and to turn their ba her back to them. It was just the way he so easily said she let me in the house like a fucking neighbor. Well, and the other thing that's interesting to me, too, is, is it possible there was a back door? Yes, most houses do have a back door. Sure. But then what I'd love to know was, was that door locked? Because if we're only using the front door, how did the person lock the door behind them if they didn't have a key? Correct. Do the neighbors have a key? And that's the reason why Doug called them? Because if that's the case, why wouldn't they have gone in right away? Why would he oh. even have to allegedly break down the door? And if they don't have a key, then my suspicion goes back to Doug once again. Sure. Because he would have a key. Did he lend he his would. key? Oh. That's more than possible. Was there a key missing? Find the key. <laughs> Right? Yeah. I don't know. Again, these are all just things that stand out. Um, it's Linda is so sad to me. The fact that she even admitted to killing Beverly herself at one point, like it's sad because it feels like there's some real struggles going on for her. And it's oh, also yeah. sad for me because unfortunately, while I have complete compassion for those struggles, it does obstruct the police work. I mean, oh, if someone's consistently changing their story, that's it's it's just sad it was, all around. It was also for me that the when it first happened and they were first interviewed, they both went, "Oh yeah, we were together all night," and the cops went, "Okay, great, check off I know. the list." Again, again like, but but again, that's why it's weird to me that they also quickly were like, oh, Doug's fine, too. It's like, well, what if the three of them were in on it? It's possible. I don't know. Um, the whole time you were telling me that story, I was like, this is an undercover cop for sure. Then you said they threw the body in the lake, and that's what confounded me, because I was like, how would they fake the body? Didn't even think that it could be as simple as a weighted mannequin, but here we are. Um, You'll be happy to know, I would assume, um, when they arrested him, they told him immediately... Because they knew for so long that it was eating him up inside that he disposed of a body. Oh, my God. They told him immediately, the body wasn't real. The body wasn't real. We don't want you to live with that anymore, man. Body wasn't real. It's like, just so you know, I don't think that a person would just go, oh, okay, great. Wipe. Done. No. My anxiety over that is gone. It's like, <laughs> it's like my child returning. <laughs> Your anxiety yeah. wasn't immediately it was not, it, It's not a switch. It doesn't go on and off with like a light switch. Yeah. Well, 
This whole revelation about this police tactic, Mr. Big, first of all, now that they've been talking about it publicly, can they even use it if they... Now, granted, I guess some people would not would be doing crimes that aren't listening to this podcast, for example, but you found this information. So to me, it's like, is it like they're going to have to change it in order for it to continue to work? And I use the term work very loosely because obviously it's it's rife with issues. Um, When you were talking about Andy Rose and how they spent eight months, I'll say it, grooming him, for lack of a better term. Yeah. And then when he wouldn't give them what they wanted, they got him drunk and he confessed. I just wrote down rules, guys. And what I mean by that is this. In the United States, there's so many rules about forced confessions and and whatnot. I mean, let let me start over again. About what you need in order to achieve a conviction. Yeah. So... What's interesting to me is this Mr. Big tactic is literally the wild, wild west. Anything goes. You can say and do absolutely anything. You can create this immersive theatrical experience to whatever level. And it's admissible. Whereas, yeah, I can see why the U.S. is like, we're not doing that because there's already rules in place where there's certain things that you can and cannot do to get a confession. And this whole thing is essentially pray. You said yourself, it's, it's the way it works the best is if the person is like deeply in need of money and or friendship. <laughs> yeah. Which means that you're They're automatically, people. you're automatically preying on people and manipulating them because it's easier than someone who would not have those kind of wounds for lack or or needs for lack of a better term. Um, and it probably wouldn't work with someone like for, for example, if someone came to me, if I befriended a new friend and they were like, Hey, are you going to do this crime with me? I'd be like, no, <laughs> but that's because a, I don't need the money and B I don't need the friendship. And if someone was like, hey, I'd like you to do this illegal crime with me, I would be like, yeah. I can't have you in my life anymore, right? Yeah, like, that's a red flag for most people. Most people. That's the so, thing. It seems it's such very, very specific people they go after. People are, who are so desperate for a, a single friend that they're like, I'll do anything. Right. Anything you want. And when you hear about the forced confessions that have happened, like making a murderer – um, the young gentleman on on that show, for example, who absolutely told them what he thought they wanted to hear, like these forced confessions are like it's a real thing. And when you, you know, if you're a true crime fan, which I think most people listening to this probably are, you there's we've heard so many of these stories where it's like, how could anyone ever falsely confess? And then you hear the stories where it's like, well, it was 36 hours and the person had whatever um intellectual issues or whatever. There's a million different stories that you hear. And then it's like, oh, well, it actually seems quite plausible. So when you're talking to me about grooming someone for eight months, gaining someone's trust for eight months, it's, that's, that's, I mean, it's, I don't know. I don't know how I feel about this. It feels to me like it's like, it's gotta be completely reworked. And they're yeah. right. It is pre- prejudicial to a jury if they hear that this person has agreed to do other illegal activities. 
Yep. Almost feels like maybe this isn't the best. <laughs> it almost feels like, why are we still doing this? Yeah. If nothing else, it needs a major overhaul. But again, I don't know. What, what I mean, what would happen if there was a suspect in a, in a murder, for example? Sure. Who wasn't easy to manipulate? Are those the 25% that continue to go unsolved? You know what I mean? When you were saying that it was like in 75% of the Mr. Big um, cases, it either ends in them being convicted or exonerated. Is the other other 25%, again, the people that are like, it just doesn't work on? I don't know. It's it's to me, it is just so sad. It's it's such a like extreme and in in every one of the examples you gave i was like there's no there's no proving that any of this is real you've already made this person fear for their life or um have dangled the carrot by offering them expensive vacations and saying we'll protect you forever you can be in this group etc like it's just i don't know how any of those confessions could be considered real oh i think it's one of the dumbest things i've ever heard of and <laughs> cops aren't given any sort of line it's you do whatever it takes to get them to say they did it they confidently are like 95 percent conviction rate and it's like but most of them are wrongful convictions and then how many of those get overturned yeah and of the examples i mean i think three of them for sure they push them over the edge that fourth guy from saskatchewan who allegedly i believe killed his wife that one i believe he there's a pattern of yep. yeah but see that to me feels like okay if you're gonna you know employ mr big on someone that one's interesting to me because there's such a pattern of behavior and massive motive he had massive motive to kill her yeah he's already been convicted of domestic violence she's also holding on to his access to his pension, which was a huge amount of money. He's got nothing but motive and a history of violence against her. But then I would say, do you need to employ Mr. Big? Because to me, it just feels like there's oh. got to be a smoking gun that you can find with him. To me, there it's already like there's no... Do you need his confession at this point? We have so many things going against no, him. Yeah, no. I think the only problem there was there was no body. Oh, 100%. And that freaks out, you know, law enforcement, obviously. Oh, of course. About trying to get a conviction. It's just um, surprising to me. He's like, yeah, I buried the gun somewhere outside of Saskatoon. And outside of Saskatoon, a gun very similar that ha made the same markings was found. And it's like, mm-hmm. 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 I just don't think he fell for the Mr. Big as hard as... No. For example, Alan did, which it broke that man. Well, and also Nelson Hart, oh, again, the, God, the yeah. deaths of his twin daughters. When you first said, oh, he he went home to his wife, I was like, oh, wow, well, that's, you know. But then when you went on to explain, well, he only had a fourth grade education. He was socially isolated. He was only ever seen with his wife. He had a traumatic brain injury. Suddenly you go, oh, this is someone who is dealing with an overwhelming situation yep. and for multitudes of reasons that 
I'm not defending his behavior. It just starts to make a little bit more sense. So then when you know that of this person, that's the person that you go after using this deep, deep manipulative I don't know. That that one felt really sad to me too, where I was like, it sounds to me like this person who had potential diminished capabilities, again, traumatic brain injuries, all of these kinds of things, his social isolation, isolation, all of those things. It seemed more to me like someone who panicked in a moment of extreme trauma and did not make the right choices. And to go after that person. Oh, I know. It's dark, man. It's really depressing. <laughs> to make him reenact oh, it. I know. <sighs> when again, it's like, I don't know. I shouldn't begin to, I shouldn't begin to try and ask questions because I'm like, isn't there something in the medical examiner report or the pathology? Like, isn't there a way to prove that they were, they fell rather than were pushed? But I guess there's not. I guess you could look for bruising. Sure. But then also it would be, is there a way to figure out, you know, we go down that rabbit hole. Anyway, that one did break me a little bit too because I was like, that's just somebody who you've absolutely pushed into something after months and months and months of providing them with friendship and all of the above. Yeah. Um, you said that Danny, Alan's uh, fake friend Danny, was, who was the undercover cop, was Officer Skinner. I'd like to give a shout out to Mitch Pileggi, who played Skinner on the X-Files. Um, of course. <laughs> that's the end of that thought. Um, yeah, the last thing I wanted to say that I really agree with you on is how is it that if she was on the phone till 7, she was found at 8.35, no one in the neighborhood other than Linda, who is an unreliable witness because her story changed a, a lot of different times. Yeah. How did no one in the neighborhood hear this gunshot? Was there a silencer on the gun? Right. Was there, you know, some other situation? Or is it one of these things, and this is the last kind of thought that I had that, I again, I'm just noodling on. What's up with this neighborhood? Was everybody sure. in on it? Was everybody turning blind eyes? Again, when we hear about different neighbors in the same area having so many connections to varying levels of drug dealing, um, I don't know. It just struck me when you said that. I was like, you're right. That does seem very odd. How did no one come forward? Oh, it's more than possible that it's based on 150 clients that come in and out of his house, potentially something to do with a motorcycle club. It, it, it's more than possible that all of the other neighbors who aren't into that sort of thing are used to that kind of activity and are like, just turn a blind eye to everything that happens over there. Play dumb because it's the safest thing you can do. Yeah. Yeah. Well, my God, I hope that at the end of the day, now that we're unfortunately so many years past when this case happened, it would be nice if there was some kind of closure, but I mean, it seems tough at this point. Oh, at to, this point? To speculate whether they're going to get closure. This many years down the road, it's like, oh, I don't foresee it. Yeah. Unfortunately. Yeah. 
Well, listen, Christy Oxborough, amazing work as always. This was a real wild ride. I uh, honestly was completely transfixed. I can see why this case spoke to you because it just feels like there's so many questions and so few answers. It, I like that it was Canadian, but then it's just so frustrating. And then it yeah. was kind of heartbreaking to learn about Alan. But I have a, I have a, a, a note for Amazon. I'd like I did to hear not, it. I did not like the order in which they gave me the information. Interesting. Because you didn't we went, like how the documentary was set up. I did not, but only because it was a case of it started with Alan and went into all the stuff about Alan and all of these things about him. And it just felt like it was really hard focusing on Alan. And then episode two was like, oh, yeah, by the way. So even though this whole thing is titled Beverly, now we're going to talk about Beverly. And then we're going to go back to Alan. And so it just felt like, I just felt like maybe she should have been the focus of the first episode. Yeah. At the very least. And then we move on to the bullshit that Alan got put through. That's interesting. It's just the way they did it. I was like, uh-huh. When are we, like... At one at one point, partway through the first episode, I was like, when are we even getting to the case? Why are we still talking about this guy? You know what's interesting? That's a really interesting note. And I, if you ask me to give a specific example, I don't know that I'm going to be able to come up with one off the top of my head. But what I will say is this. I have noticed lately in some of these newer true crime docs that the ones that are like a few episodes, two to four episodes, say. Right. That, that there's a little bit of exactly what you're saying there where it's like it feels oddly laid out. It feels like the order is weird. And then the big note that I have that I know we've talked about about other ones too is that it feels like things are getting stretched into way yeah. more episodes than they need to. They are 100%. walking around stories and telling the same thing in, in you know, many mm -hmm. just many different ways. And I'm curious – if some of all of this is because there's been so much fervor in the true crime genre over the past, well, especially over the past three, four years, I feel like it is yeah. amplified so intensely. Are, pe are they cranking out these documentaries at a speed that they used not to? Are they, sure, you know, taking on so many more that, that there's some level of, um, I don't know what the right word is, but like editing that that maybe is getting lost in a million different ways. Um, it's interesting because I've just noted that a few times recently myself when I was watching different different things. And I'm like, mm -hmm. this is weird. Where are we going? Get to it. Or it's like, mm -hmm. you've told us that same point so many times. It feels to me like it's a case of almost like these producers feel they will get more cred in the true crime world, if it's like, oh my God, it's three, four hours long. Yeah. Ooh, they've got a ton of information, but it's like, they have an hour. Yeah. And it's like, don't just, it doesn't have to be four or five episodes. Put it into a single hour, put it into one, two episodes. That's fine. Yeah. 90 minutes. Yeah. It's fine. You know, is, is, is a dateline is typically either a 45 or a 90, right? Like depending. Yeah on whether it's a double. That feels like you can get through 
a lot of what you need to get through in that amount of time. Yeah. It's when they start repeating themselves in later episodes as though it's new information. And you're like, but we know this already. Yeah. That's what frustrates me because I'm like, what are we doing with my time, guys? Yeah. My time, uh, I'd like some of it back. Yeah. That's interesting. That's such a great yeah. point. And it's interesting that it really bumped you that hard, that it was like- It did. Yeah. I was I was in a rush to get through because I knew I only had so much time because, I mean, I took notes with me on the plane to make sure I was working on stuff in my downtime. But I knew I had a deadline to reach. So I was like, okay, I want to get through this documentary. And then I was like, guys- we're an episode in and I don't know anything about the crime yet. Like, stop it. Well, and you know, it's interesting because not to bring up the case that broke me, but uh, Gacy, that as, as we all remember, this was very early True Crime and Cocktails, the one that I got in far too deep with for two, spent yeah. too many days. Um, but part of the reason why I was in so deep with that one is that that is an example where you can fill many episodes sure with those stories because there's so many victims yeah. and there's so many stories and it spans such a long period of time you know that that's again like that's somebody who you can do a six part series on and even then you'll probably be cutting stuff out because there's yeah. just decades of information and victims and time and all of the right. above um but again for for a single murder, for example, you know, Gacy was killing, I can't remember the number, but, you know, so many victims. And there were so yeah. many victims that even long after the fact may have been attributed to him. When you're dealing with a single victim, yeah, it's going to be tough to, like, it's going to be tough to stretch that potentially unless it's got so many different details and layers, et cetera. Right. Um, like the friend of the family, well, friend of the family is the, scripted version, but it was based on Abducted in Plain Sight. Sure. Which is a documentary on Netflix, which I'm assuming you have not watched. I have not. It's the wildest, wildest story that you will ever hear. Truly. Sure. Um, and that's one for me where I was riveted for, I don't know how many episodes it was, but I was riveted the entire time because it took turns that you couldn't imagine. But it also spanned many, many, many years to sure. tell this story. Um, and then when they made it into the the scripted version starring Colin Hanks and Jake Lacey, it was like it, it, it filled the time, I guess is my point. There's so sure. much there in this story. And that's just about one victim. Um, not even a murder. But there you go. It's... Yeah, I guess I just feel like maybe the, you love this. Maybe the art of the true crime doc is kind of slipping a little. Maybe the, you know. So what you're saying is we we need to move into documentaries. I think ours would be fabulous. Oh, I think so too. Get to the point. Listen, and this is coming from someone, I mean, I've I've I am the one who's notorious for three-hour episodes of this show. Sure. But again, I will say, I don't think I've... the goods. Well, I don't think I've ever gone on a repeat of information. I think that any of those long episodes, it's like, well, I should have edited it more. There was just a lot of info. Sure. Um, but yeah, no, I hear you. That's very interesting. Very interesting. I wonder if we're going to see more. 
We're going to hear more complaints in this vein over the next couple of years. Because this documentary, I noticed, was released last year, so it is a new yeah, it is. Yeah. I mean, listen, I also, there's been one that's on my mind that I didn't want to call out because I was like, don't be, don't do that. Don't be rude. But. Well, you can call I, it out without saying its name if you want. Exactly. I did watch one recently. I can't remember if it was two or three episodes, but it was about, you know, a certain fast food spokesman. Sure. And to be honest, I really was like, this is an, this is an hour. Mm. You know what I mean? Like, mm -hmm. because <coughs> even in learning about who he was, what his childhood was, et cetera, that was quick. Sure. Was quick. And I think seemingly because when you hit on the important parts, unless there is some grander thing, which they did not show me, so perhaps there is, but it wasn't included. But sure. Unless there is this grander kind of story, backstory, it didn't take up much time. And then for me, it was just, it was just, a, a, it was taking a long road mm. to get to a destination. You know? Yeah. Yeah. I and it was, that. it, that's an interesting one too. And listen, I don't want to spoil it for anybody either, but the only thing I will say is that it's an interesting one too, given the themes that we're talking about in this episode. Because a big part of that case, for people who don't know, they all know who I'm talking about, but whatever. Um, a big part of that case was someone trying to get information out of him. Sure. But you know as well as I do, from everything we've been talking about in this episode, what's real? Can we believe everything that someone is sharing with someone that they've had a friendship for or that they believe that they can trust? Can we believe that everything they're saying is true? Now, absolutely, the person in question, Shmira Schmogel, obviously, there was crimes there. I'm not in any way suggesting there wasn't. But so much of the documentary I found focused on these, were, these recordings that were being done where someone's trying to get this information out of him, and it is vile. The shit he's saying, he should, it should be a crime if it's not. It was, ugh, awful. Sure. But how much of it is true, we don't know, right? Like, how much of it is true, how much of it is just talk, et cetera, which is, again, it does tie back to, to what we've been talking about in this episode, where part of what the issue then became in the Schmerich Mogul case was how much of it is admissible into court because it's, where's the evidence about what he's talking about? And there was none. Until then, there was, and the, that's the reason why he's in jail now is because of that. But again, this documentary just spent so much time on that. Right. And then for it to be like, but none of that really mattered because none of it really counted. You know what I'm saying? It's like, well, you've just yeah. walked us through this like parade of truly depravity, just the just disgusting that I don't and think we led. needed to sit in for that long. And it led nowhere. And it led nowhere because the whole point was that it was like, yeah, all this happened, but that was kind of a red herring and then this happened and that, oh, whatever. I hate that. You know? Look, did they choose the right spokesperson? No. No. Are they still a great product? Shout out Wubshay. 
What is Wubshay? Because I'm trying to schmerd schmogle this. <laughs> you did such a good job at it. I was like, what is that? <laughs> Noted. Got it? Yeah. I was Got trying it. to uh, schwubshay. You know, it didn't. Well, you know, it's funny. I we I can't remember which of my friends had made this <laughs> comment, but there was that uh, schwubshay had that scandal that the bread was so far from bread it was not no longer considered real food or whatever that it was like sure. there was so many chemicals in it it was closer to mm. styrofoam or something than actual mm-hmm. bread <laughs> i just remember i'm not sure who it was so i don't want to speculate but i remember hearing someone say like if ever there was a scandal that they were probably relieved to have it was the fake bread like that one <laughs> is like oh no ooh ha yeah sorry guys That's a little we really more, we a messed little up for the palate a little yeah. bit better for the brand, I would say. Um, and one would say, really? A brand having food ingredients come out as not actually being real food is not the worst scandal that could hit them? No. No. Not even close. No. Not even close. But listen, Christy Oxborough, great work. Lovely discourse. I've really enjoyed this. I, I'm so glad. But and you, I hope that, that you, dear listeners, also have enjoyed it. Because we really went on a tangent there. Especially that you don't use what we've said about God when they just go on and on. We're just like, yeah. and you don't uh, focus on it. I mean, hey, we did have someone, uh, you think we don't read the comments. We do. We don't have time to respond to stuff. But uh, uh, Kurt Cobain, when yeah. we did that episode, uh, there was somebody who commented like, Christ, I'm 40 some minutes in and you haven't even got to his death yet. And it's like, he had a big life. <laughs> He did have a big life. But the point is, I like to give uh, the background. And that particular episode for me was very difficult to get through. And so as someone who wrote an essay about him in the eighth grade, I was doing uh, another uh, essay. God, if I could find that essay and just have read that, God, it would have been heartbreaking. Anyhow, the point is, we understand that we tend to take a while to get to some places. We often get told people prefer the longer episodes. That's true. So we hear what you're going to say before you say it. So we're good. And again, you know, if there's a big life of information, let's hear it all. Yeah. But, you know, when we're going around the same track over and over and over again to kill time or add time or whatever. Anyway. We like to bring new stuff to add to the time. Absolutely. Is well, Christy Oxborough, fantastic work as always. You never cease to impress and amaze. You are too kind. I try. I'm just happy we got through this with minimal coughing. We did great. We both went and got lozenges partway through and waters. I chugged and we made some it. cough medicine at the yep. beginning of this. It was not pleasant. No. But these are the things um, we do for our craft. But what is pleasant art. is all of you, dear listeners, listening to this show. We thank you for joining us for this episode of True Crime and Cocktails. If you haven't already, give us a follow on the socials on Instagram, Facebook, and YouTube at True Crime and Cocktails, on Twitter at Not Detectives. And if you'd like some more bonus content, some more of these two chuckleheads yip-yapping, then go over to patreon.com slash Cocktails, where you can subscribe to our subscription-based service. Uh, we do so many fun things over there. Bonus episodes every month, live monthly Q&As, a monthly poll. It's a lot of fun. Check it out if you're interested. And the only place for official True Crime and Cocktails merch is, of course, truecrewmerch.com. So check that out as well if you like. There is some brand new Creep Creek uh, merch that's going to be dropping this week. We talked about this on the normal pod, the normal feed too, didn't we? Creep Creek? 
it all runs together with me, to be honest. I think we did. Um, if I, we didn't, they'll let us know. Uh, we definitely talk about it on Patreon. So again, <laughs> there will be the merch there, whether you understand it or not. Um, I think we did. This isn't for now. Now's the time that I'm talking in a circle like we completely. Okay. So thanks again, dear listeners. Christy, do you want to tell the people about next week's episode? On the next True Crime and Cocktails, Brian Rhine. Well, I am looking forward to that, and I hope that you are too, dear listeners. Christy, do you want to say goodnight to the people? Good night, people of the world. Spice up your life. Good night, Mitch Pileggi. Audible is the destination for thrilling audio entertainment. Allow your imagination to be piqued by stories that are brought to life through captivating sound design, eerie soundscapes, and dynamic performances. As an Audible member, you'll be able to keep your heart rate up month after month because you can choose one title a month to keep from the entire catalog, including the latest bestsellers and new releases. If you're in the mood for a shocking psychological thriller, check out None of This is True by Lisa Jewell. Embrace brand new exclusive thrillers from bestselling authors who are guaranteed to keep you gripped. New members can try Audible free for 30 days. Visit audible.com slash thrill or text thrill to 500-500. That's audible.com slash thrill or text thrill to 500-500.